How can you influence the decision-making process if you are targeting enterprise accounts? This is the most probably common question I receive from B2B marketers and founders community. According to HPR, the number of people involved in B2B solutions purchases has climbed from an average of 5.4 two years ago to 6.8 today and these stakeholders come from a lengthening roster of roles, functions and geographies. The resulting divergence in personal and organizational priorities makes it difficult for buying groups to agree to anything more than move cautiously, avoid risk and save money. And it makes extremely hard to generate business with enterprises. You need to deal with long sales cycle, with multiple uh, buying committee members, and you need to think out of the box how to engage uh, with these people, how to find loyal champions inside these accounts in order to generate business to close the deal successfully. I decided to invite a good friend of mine, Carol Karafiat, who is a founder of software development company called Slack Dogs. Um, and Carol is a seasoned marketing and sales specialist. He used to work as a consultant and he sold to his services to huge enterprises as Accenture, as Mercedes, Benz in Germany. So in the new episode of the full final B2B marketing podcast, we'll chat with Carol. How did he influence the enterprise decision-making process? Uh, how his processes looks like and any tips and hints on prospecting and targeting enterprise accounts. Enjoy the new episode. Welcome to System B2B Marketing Podcast, hosted by Andre Zinkovich. Every week with B2B marketing professionals, we dive deeply into topics ranging from creating an effective marketing strategy to lead generation methods. Our goal is to help B2B marketers and founders increase pipeline, scale revenue, and customer growth with system marketing. Learn more at getlido.com. So we are live. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to the new episode of the System B2B Marketing uh, live chats today with my guest, with Carol, who is also another speaker at B2B Marketers and Founders Conference that will hold in Valencia. Uh, we'll speak about influencing B2B decision making. Uh, Carol also is Slack Dog founder, but uh, I, will give, uh, I will give him a mic to introduce himself so uh, he'll be able to do it much better than me. Um, so like, like I mentioned, we'll speak today about how to penetrate into enterprise companies, uh, what a Slack Dog's lead generation process looks like, how to uh, engage with several decision makers, how to figure out uh, actually what is the decision making process in your target account is, uh, how to influence this decision making process and many other questions. Uh, so feel free just to drop all your questions in the comment section and we'll uh, with, uh, 
I will pleasure answer them uh, during the conversation. So, uh, Carl, thanks a lot for joining me today. Hello, hello. Nice to nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. Um, actually, you know, besides my short, very short introduction, I always ask my guests to introduce themselves as they can do it much, much better than me. So let's start with a very easy question, who you are and what you do. You know, Andre, I think actually that is that is maybe the hardest question to answer. Uh, I, I was hoping for that I get from you a sound bite that I can reuse over and over again. You know, Carl is, because I don't have an answer to that. But uh, I think maybe what, what makes most sense is to, to, to look at my career path, right? Um, I, I think that gives a bit of an, an, an introduction who I am, what I do, and what I think. So, so sh shall we start with that, maybe? <laughs> Definitely, but that's that's actually the question. What okay. I like Doc and uh, just share with our listeners. Okay, I look. I basically grew up in a in a tiny, tiny village. Like not so tiny. It's it's a rather big village, tiny city in in the Black Forest. And, and right after I I uh, take uh, finished school, I went on to be a salesman. And a salesman, really, in the sense of selling goods back then mobile phones like the dump phones not the not the smart ones um two persons directly right and um so there i learned a lot about uh, how to do that and i think that is maybe the base of everything what i'm doing right now mm, i was the youngest uh, uh sales manager to 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 be allowed to uh create um uh, workshops Right, like internally to for schooling purposes, so that was one big achievement. And basically, after that, um, because I realized, hey, there's a thing, and uh, the thing is called the internet, and it will kind of destroy your 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 uh, salesman business. Um, I went to study, and I studied. Um, nowadays, you would call it behavioral economics. Um, it's basically the, the bridge between psychology and economics. Mm, and after that, um, I, I made some contributions, like some scientific ones, and was then hired as a consultant. And in the role as a consultant, I was working, let's say, 25 to 30 companies, and mostly in the sphere of uh, market penetration, pricing, um, uh, profiling, uh, and, and, and that kind of uh, thing, right? Um, later, I moved then on to go a bit in the background of consulting, um, creating models on how to consult. So, and at some point I was like, okay, um, I don't want to wear a suit every day. I kind of feel uh, I'm, I'm seeing repeating patterns, what companies uh, make wrong. Um, and I'm not really in a position to fix that. I need an own company. And so I teamed up with some amazing people um, and we created Slaydogs. And yeah, so, so, so that's in a nutshell my story. Um, Sladeops is a, is a product studio. So that means basically we offer everything you need to generate out of a vision or an idea, um, an innovative product. So uh, from consulting, design, implementation, aftercare, basically the whole process. And we've done that with a lot of um, amazing people, uh, great startups, uh, great, great enterprises. And... Um, I think we, we are very good in creating products that people love to use, um, creating them in a, in, a, in a process that is kind of enjoyable for the client and for us, while creating a very unique company culture to be able to last, let's say, 
five or ten or ideally one thousand decades, right? Yeah, that's a great story. That's a great story. Besides snake dogs, and you know, here's a like here you can see in action a famous German mentality to think about many steps forward, many steps uh, for a business which will length for many years. That's yeah. great. <laughs> that's great. You know, actually, what I mentioned in the podcast intro, uh, mm -hmm. you have acquired such monsters as Mercedes-Benz, as Accenture, as Mimi, yes. as Google Launchpad, as a customers. So for many companies, you know, it's just a dream clients. Everybody mm -hmm. uh, don't know. I don't know a company or let's say let me uh, let niche down it to the marketing agencies to mm -hmm. the marketing area who who actually doesn't think uh, about such customers. So um, you know that the enterprise lead generation process is very sophisticated, mm -hmm. uh, but you have figured out the solution. So share with us uh, what's how actually your lead generation process looks like and what your secrets to penetrate into such clients. Well, like that's a tough one. Like, like maybe um, let me start by saying we don't exclusively work with big clients, right? Um, we're basically trying to, to have a good mix in our portfolio between let's say startups, um, like tiny startups um, where we love the idea, we kind of believe in the founders and we want to go with them, right? And then in contrast to that, working on these let's say bigger innovation topics with with these huge accounts right um so huh, i might disappoint you a bit here i believe but roughly 80 percent of um the the leads we're getting or the jobs we're closing are recommendations so we are lucky in the position that in our niche in which we are um, and in our ecosystem people know that we are good so Basically, the, the, the first thing I can tell you, what you definitely need to do is build up reputation. There, there is nothing like that works better than that. You need to deliver A-class products. Um, you need to, to go the extra miles. You, you need to be able to carry, uh, let's say, a huge, um, big client on your shoulders, which means a lot of iteration rounds, which means a lot of people involved, which means sometimes very, very long decision cycles. And, and, and that is not easy and not many can do it well. Um, so I think that's one of our edges. So, yeah, please. Awesome, I just, I just was wondering, you know, so besides, um, it's, uh, besides the reputation, besides the word of mouth, even in these cases when uh, somebody introduces your companies, introduce your companies to uh, another corporation, uh, mm -hmm. you still, uh, you still, should be involved in the tender like it's the most common way mm -hmm. how enterprise companies sign contracts with contractors uh, mm -hmm. or at least you'll be uh, uh, as usually you are introduced to one decision maker but you know that enterprise mm -hmm. companies have several decision makers yeah, so yeah. Mm -hmm. so the question is uh what do you do how you can avoid tenders or at least if there will be a tender uh what can you do to outstand your company i mean like dog uh, yeah. amongst your competitors man like these are like uh, if i counted correctly these are three really really heavy questions right so we have okay. basically we have basically one what can you do to avoid tenders um 
we have two, uh, if you are an attender, how can you stand out, right? And yeah. three, and, and three, how to deal with like multiple decision-making things. Uh, okay, yeah, that's, I'll that's, start with the first. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's heavy. Uh, let, let me start maybe by first stating that you have to be on your toes all the time um, because there is no golden key in unlocking those accounts. Um, it's things change constantly. For example, three things that often change are your point of entry, right? Or basically, I, I always call it our first ambassador in, 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 a, in, a, in a company, can be that he uh, moves his job, can be that he suddenly works in a different department, right? Often changes um, price sensitivity. Right. For example, we, we started an account and uh, we we had the or like a job and we had the feeling, hey, these guys are really really looking after quality. So we tuned everything we've done uh, to quality. And later we realized uh, because of some bigger shift in strategy, which often happens in bigger companies, uh, suddenly they are rather price sensitive than quality sensitive. Um, and and the last thing I've seen changing a lot and what keeps us on our toes is um, we often enter enter tenders or let's say negotiation processes because we're trying to avoid tenders um, by argumenting with a technological edge. We're normally argumenting that we are technologically superior to most of the things you would find otherwise because we have an exceptional good team which operates basically in state-of-the-art technology. But this can change rapidly. Like you work half a year on a project and suddenly there's technology out there you wouldn't have even known before, right? So, so, so this may be as the first frame where you have to be careful and maybe as an advice, you have to monitor the situation or the relationship between you and your account constantly, right? Because the, the thing that worked, let's say half a year ago, doesn't have to work later. There, there is no magic code you type in, you know, like a super cheat code and everything works. You basically have to adjust to the needs of the account constantly. Mm, so let, let me also go a bit into um, very short how to engage with people because I believe that is a bit um, what this is all about in the end, like to what it boils down. That's and, right. and, 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 and there I kind of believe that this is where uh, Jonas, my co-founder, and I have a personal edge because we're both in that field for quite some time. It's this... I. We believe that the last years were a lot about automation, about uh, technocracy, about uh, efficiency, about the rationality of things. Um, but at some point, I feel it swinging back. And I feel it swinging back towards what I would call an old school type of salesmanship, right? That starts with um, knowing your account, uh, knowing the name of the kids. Uh, knowing the birthday, sending a card, uh, calling, asking for advice. For example, you know that, uh, uh, let, let me assume that you like motorcycles, right? And I want to buy one, which I actually want to. So if anyone has a tip, I would really appreciate it. But I, I would call you, even if you're an account, like like a deal I'm trying to close, I would call you, hey, Andre, mm, I, I have this, like, like here, I got an offer for a motorbike. I know you know a lot about it. What do you think? So. I would try to engage with you on many, many different levels. And I would try, don't get me wrong, it's not about this like, you know, used car dealership type of salesman. That should actually die. And it died because of the internet, because of the transparency it delivered. 
but it's about this salesman that takes pride in his product and pride in his solution and cares about that people use it right and that it enriches their life. And this attitude goes a very, very, very long way. So that may be as a, as a frame around it, right? <laughs> like like what, 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 it, what, 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 what I think is kind of like the backbone of all of that. You need to be able to um, face to face to a person with the love of your product. If you can't do that, you will never ever be able to scale it. So, right? Um, let me let me quickly go to the third point: uh, tenders. I'll just just give me a second. I was, uh, you know, what you answered just remind me a famous book by Harvey Mackey called mm -hmm. "How to Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive." Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and this famous book, I know it's not uh, very popular amongst modern marketers, but uh, we are the old school guys. It was a yeah, very yeah. popular book. So uh, I was really surprised uh, when Harvey described his, uh, let's say, enrichment process, let's call mm -hmm. it this way, where mm -hmm. he shared his uh, Mackey 66 uh, survey. So for every salespeople, even uh, nowadays, marketer can do just a part of the job. But at, at that time, it was mandatory for salespeople to mm -hmm. know 66 points about their target accounts, about their account customers, all the stuff that you mentioned. So even for what football team you support or, exactly. Uh, exactly. or what kind of cognac do you drink or whiskey, etc., etc. So uh, you should be like a best friend for your target account. And it's just uh, one of the mandatory things to stay with with uh, such companies and as i came also from fmcg market we mm -hmm. had deal with biggest supermarket chains the same enterprise companies where sometimes uh contracts can be signed for five years i mean the sales cycle mm -hmm. can, uh five yeah. years so it's just if you want to be if you want at least sign this contract you should always be in close touch with your uh with core people from let's call them yeah. let's divide them into segments decision makers and people who influence the decision maker that is an that is an interesting point you're making with the distinction like um because actually when we're looking into let's say the the science behind group decisions what you will see is that there isn't much like, like we have a we have a whole lot about the decision making of individuals, right? Uh, we have a whole lot about why are people addicted? Uh, why do they gamble? Why do they make wrong decisions? Right? Often, uh, you can find tons, but you won't find that much on how are actually the inner workings of a mechanism of a decision making unit, right? Like, how does that work? So, so you asked me, how can you? What would be a good starting point, right? If you if you have a new account, and what would you do? Um, what I normally do is I'm kind of looking at the um, every decision-making process basically has to have at least seven roles. These these seven roles can be divided on three people. They can be divided on two people. If it's a really tiny company, sometimes all of that is condensed into one person. But let's say in, in our bigger accounts, um, we're dealing with, let's say, minimum four up to 50 right and these roles are somehow always distributed and the roles are you have the the the, the users 
So these are actually the ones that will then use your service or product. You have the influencers. Um, the influencers are those who are defining the, uh, like in a sense, the, the preconditions for the buying decision. Um, you have the buyers. These are the normal guys you see when, when you're uh, facing, right? These are the ones you're negotiating with. Um, you have the initiators um, who are the ones that suffered the most under the problem you're trying to solve and initiated basically the outreach to find a solution. These are very important because these guys are easiest to turn into your ambassadors, right? If you, if you get them on your side, the one that initially yelled, oh man, something is going wrong here, we need to make it better. Um, these guys normally have a lot of attention in the process, right? In this negotiation internal. Um, then you have the deciders, which is uh, normally the guy or the girl at the top. Careful here, uh, people tend to overestimate the, the importance of that because we have the we tend to overestimate how much they actually decide. They normally, in, in bigger companies, only give a signature. Important is to find the level below it and um, because this is the level that prepares the decision for them and they basically reduce a complex decision for the decider to a choice, right? And uh, the last two are gatekeepers and, and finance, right? Finance is clear, it's the budget restrictions, um, and the gatekeepers are can be something like a receptionist, right? So someone who, who moderates this process of who gets in, who gets out, uh, who talks to whom, like the, the organizing force, actually. So, and starting very consciously by identifying these seven functions in the people involved um, gives you a huge edge because what you want to do is you want to understand the motivation of everyone involved, ideally, right? Like you, you would love to see, hey, he does that because of that, or I can influence him if I better my offer in that sphere, right? He loves A, this guy loves B, so who is more important? Where do I, sh where do I need to focus? And by mapping them onto basically these seven roles, you already understand, and it's a continuous process, but you already understand the base motivation of most of them. And that, that, that is a good head start, right? That, there, there is basically, if you do this, you're one step into the game because honestly, it's nothing else but a game. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome point. Awesome point on this. <laughs> and uh, you know, and just uh, realized what we miss. Um, in case, uh, in case, if we have uh, several decision makers and mm -hmm. if we have also gatekeepers and if we mm -hmm. have several people who influence the decision making process. From your experience, uh, whom you should reach out firstly? Well, that is hard, like because truth to be told, Andre, most of the time, and I think you know it, uh, we have to take what we get, right? Like it's it's uh, in, especially in the in the in the bigger games, you are normally assigned to someone, or or, or someone is like the, the predefined gatekeeper, and you're channeled there. So what what I learned is that. And that goes back really a long time. And it's, it's again, very much basic um, um, uh, penetration strategy. And that is, there are three ways, like three classical ways how to do it or, or how to approach it. And um, they are bottom up, top down and middle in. And I, I, if you want to, I can go quickly through all three Definitely. of them. Definitely, yeah? let's, let's discuss them. Like, it's a bit like, 
the 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 bottom up approach is pretty straightforward it's normally the one that is pre-designed um by by the by the corporation you're working with and it's like you're you're coming you're getting as i said you're getting assigned to to someone who pre-sorts who kind of checks who, who who has like a rough idea of what this is about and then you're passing on the stages that is bottom up top down is the exact opposite that is actually where you are more active because you're trying to jump as high into this value chain and then being delegated downwards because what that does is um it it already gives you a massive internal authority boost uh, imagine that uh, you are succeeding in uh, going to both with the ceo right and mm -hmm. or, or, or getting on the phone with him or he responds to your email and he then delegates you further down to someone who really uh, is like an expert or or he, he puts you like from top into that process that already implies for everyone else involved in that process that uh, okay this guy was or, or this this product or the service was pre-vetted by our highest authority and that gives you already like two three steps ahead of everyone that comes bottom up so Top down is definitely, at least for for complex accounts, um, definitely preferable to to bottom up, I believe. But now, the the, the fun part is, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts about it, because I I absolutely believe that middle in uh, is actually the, on average, not in every game, but on average, the superior strategy. And middle in is that you're. Uh, trying to find or to identify and that is a complex thing how to do that um, but trying to identify who is the knowledge keeper for that specific problem uh, in the company and that is normal that's kind of middle management that that's somewhere there right it's it's never the ceo like a specific problem it's never ceo matter ceos are about big picture they're about resource allocation they're not about problems we are solving with our products normally and then you're trying to get in over that edge because it it does two things one the because of the nature of the like because the knowledge is bundled there they have a lot of the seven roles bundled on that level right like like most of the roles like over 50 percent you will find there and second and that is something that i i think i mentioned already but let's think about it think about a state a state is an immensely complex construct, right? And you have these ministries, like you have the Ministry of Interior, Defense, whatnot. And then you have the, the, the heads of those, the ministers. But did you realize that they sometimes switch? Like, like you know, the, the Ministry of Finance is suddenly the Ministry of Defense, like the Minister of Defense? That happened, right? So what that tells us, it does the, the head, just can't have all the knowledge. Like you can't tell me that the Ministry of Finance and the Minister of Defense, when they switch in six months, that they know everything about defense or finance suddenly, right? And the reason why it still works is because they're rather having a representative function. And that do many CEOs or like higher ups have that as well. And below them is the, it's called technocracy. These are the guys who worked there for 20 years, 30 years, who know all the ins and outs. And these guys actually are the level where decisions are made because these guys decide um, what goes through 
actually to be a choice for the decision maker. So, so, and, and, and that's why I believe, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that, that targeting on that level, like basically middle in and identifying the clear knowledge there uh, is much, much more uh, sensible and uh, resource friendly than uh, trying to go top down. Yep, that's awesome. Uh, I assume you just nailed the topic. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, but, but you have to be, uh, maybe one, one tip um, uh, to that, like no matter which way you take, what you should always do is mm, be in very, very close contact with your first ambassador or your key contact, like, like the first one, even though it might be uh, someone that is not so important. But you you have to give him the, the valuation for being your first fan, right? You have to update him. You have to you have to show the appreciation. You have to tell him, hey, the process goes really smooth. Because what you're trying to do in these companies is you're trying to create a fan base, essentially, right? You're trying you want people to wear your shirts and root for you to get the job. The more the merrier, the more the better. Exactly. And uh, you know, um Actually, what is the right way? What is the right way uh, to figure out the decision-making process? Because it's just one of the most important parts during the negotiation, uh, during all the negotiation mm. process. In case if you'll be able to uh, evaluate to figure out this process, you can prepare the uh, correct content. You can prepare the let's say a content for the. Uh, bottom of the panel activities, you can prepare right case studies, right ROI calculators, mm -hmm. comparison reports, etc. Yeah. So, what's your approach to figuring out this uh, decision making process? Matt, like that's again a very, very complex question because it's so individual from uh, company to company. Um, it's like I always compare that to the you know these uh, real-time strategy games like Command and Conquer or Warcraft or Starcraft, yeah, where, yeah. You, where, where, where you're getting like you're getting like a starting base, and all around you is this fog of war. You know, like where you have yeah. to send your, your your little troops in to kind of uncover it, and this is exactly that. You you have to the the first thing you're doing is you have to be very very precise and clear what your starting point is um, because it's often something else than you think it is. Um, and they're not always playing very openly about it. Like so sometimes you think you are in the heart of the decision-making uh, process because everybody wants to display himself as the uh, decision-maker, but you're actually not. You're, you're like somewhere on the, on, the, on the edges. So first thing, and there comes personal quality in, and you need to be, you have to have two things really, really, well, you have to be an amazing listener and you have to be able to listen like in between the tones and in between the lines. And you have to be very smart in asking questions. And um, so, so this is the, the first thing, right? You're meeting someone, you need to locate him in the net. You need to find out, does he report somewhere or uh, is he the one that will uh, relay me to someone else or what is his function, right? And then you're mapping on these functions and from there on, you're basically, like you said, you're 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 collecting just tons of information. How do people relate to each other? Um, if I drop an information here, does it show up somewhere else, for example? And uh, truth to be told, um, at the moment, I believe that this 
let's say, approach. It's very much something great salespeople, marketeers do because they do it by nature, like they do it by instinct. I, ha I haven't seen anyone really breaking that down into like a guide or, or into, hey, this is the way how to map these um, uh, decision-making processes. Haven't seen it. And that's exactly why I chose uh, the topic I chose for, for Valencia, for, for the conference. Um, because until then, I want to provide exactly that. Like, I, I want to, that, that should be the, the takeaway for the guys um, listening, listening into Valencia. Um, should be a step-by-step -step guide on how to map out decision-making processes. So I'm currently talking to the brightest salespeople I know uh, and marketeers. You're also on that list, by the way. Um, <laughs> to to figure out their tactics and to kind of try to find the common common ground, right? Like, the, and uh, so yeah, yeah. Stay tuned. I, I don't have a perfectly fine answer for that, but I can tell you it's about definitely about mapping those roles that is scientifically proven. It's about listening. It's about the right questions, and it's about like let's say natural curiosity to always push further and not. Uh, initially believing what you've been told. <laughs> Definitely. And what do you do in cases if one of the decision makers is ready to start the business and mm -hmm. another one who also wasn't uh, uh, involved in the negotiation process held the project on pause? For example, chief marketing officer is ready to start. He transferred the project to uh, finance and uh, CFO has powered the project. Uh, mm -hmm. what what are your ideas? Well, like, first of all, I'm getting mad. You know, <laughs> like I'm getting sad and, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm questioning my life choices. But no, it's, it's mostly about, like, exactly that shouldn't happen. That's what I want to say. Uh, the first thing you need to realize in these situations is that they happen, right? Like, it's just like, that is a rule. Like, like you can't have uh, every, every fight you're taking won't go smooth. No, no chance for that. But um, it, it, what, what I like to do is two, two things. One, uh, I would love to remind everybody around me or who's working on that, that uh, we can only influence what is under our control and what we understand, right? Um, it, it's actually uh, coming, if I'm not entirely wrong, coming a bit from the Stoic philosophy uh, to say you shouldn't bother with stuff that you can't influence. Right? You should focus on what you can influence and finding out what you can and can't influence is a really, really big step. And my experience tells me that the stuff you can influence is already so much that you really shouldn't bother with stuff you can't influence. So first thing, don't get mad, it happens. Um, so let's talk about when a project is paused. I think there is there are two possibilities. Normally I see two possibilities. One. And, and you can you can judge which one of those you're hitting uh, based on whether it surprised you or not. So, A, it surprised you. If it surprised you, you can quite clearly say that your mapping is off. You made a mistake um, in, in your realm of what you can control. If you can't control it, you can't control it, right? So we're always trying to look at what could we have done differently doesn't necessarily need to be the exact right thing, but it helps us getting better at least. So one, if you are surprised by the styling, by the pause, uh, it's your mapping. That means 
mapping, I mean, is you didn't understand the process well enough in the in the time you had to foresee that you need to be able to influence someone else as well, right? So that is your mapping is somewhere faulty. Um, what you need to do in that case is you basically, um, you have to treat it like a new game. You basically, again, we're going computer games, you're basically hitting escape, <laughs> hitting escape, quit the game, start new game. But now you already know a bit more of the map, right? You're loading the same map and you already have one ally, your initial ambassador, right? The one you convince is already there. And so what I would do is I would just treat it as a completely new game. Careful, here you have to really decide whether it's worth playing one more round. It could be that it's not. It could be that, that, that the hurdles you are facing are just too high or that there is some ego in play. Uh, you know, like he doesn't want it because someone he doesn't like proposed it. That happens. And so in this case, again, listen, ask, listen closely. Try to get very close to the person that blocked it and find out their motivation. Right? You clearly didn't know enough about that person. So that is the mapping problem. The, the second thing, um, if you're not surprised, if you rather like had already this hunch and you could feel that it's coming, it's not your mapping normally, it's your tailoring. That is, um, if you knew that you need to convince him or if, if, it's, if it doesn't surprise you that he's a factor in this game, what is wrong is how you put your stuff together. Because obviously it wasn't good enough to convince that person, right? The live services issue might happen. So don't, don't worry. worry. It just, uh, it just reload my screen for some reasons. But anyway, we are live. So we okay. Can continue. Perfect. So as I said, the second thing is tailoring, right? Yeah. Like, so it's about if you, if you knew that this guy, uh, was a factor in the process, um, but you couldn't convince him, it's your service or product that is not good enough. It's not like, you know, I see it like, imagine you're trying to make a custom suit, like a, a tuxedo, right? And you need to have your measurements right. You need to know whether the left arm is longer than the right arm. You need to know uh, wh whether one leg is longer, right? Like, and if you're, if you're hitting that and you knew it can come, you obviously took the measurements wrong. So, so uh, to fix that, what you can do is, yeah, you need to get the right measures. So you need to, again, figure out where is the roadblock clear and uh, adjust, your, adjust your proposal. So mapping or tailoring is normally, um, but it's very specific. So that is normally where people then call me or us and ask for advice um, yeah. because they, they, they are already, so much into that game and it, it's normally a very long process that they're losing a bit the ability to maneuver with open eyes, you know, like you're narrowing down and you're kind of getting blind. So uh, getting a second set of eyes is extremely helpful if something is paused because uh, I normally take my co-founder or, or, or former colleagues and ask them, right? I'm, I'm basically retelling the story of how it happened and then trying to thinking while talking, figuring out why potentially there could have been something. Um, so get a second set of eyes is another tip. Um, and then maybe, and Andre, the, the, the last thing I would say is, um, it can be also that 
the ball drops completely, right? Like, like you're just dead. Hit down, called uh, cold, cold fish uh, in the water, floating up. The, yeah. What I often, what I often see as a mistake being made is that people believe this is actually the end of the game. It's not. If you're dead, it just means you're now in a different phase, and the phase is called aftercare and generating insights, because you need to. You need to know why you're dying, right? Like you, you need to know why you're dead, because there will be another game, and there will be another game with similar players, and there will be another game, maybe not for the exact same specification, but in big companies there will be another game, like every three months maybe, where you can participate. And if you're really smart, you already design an aftercare and insight generation process, right? Um, that triggers the moment you're dead. And it's reaching out to the people, asking for reasons, being still very kind, very forthcoming, um, still remembering the names of the babies and the birth dates and all of that, because you will generate immensely valuable insights how the game is played there uh, once you're out of the game. Because once you're out of the game, people will actually often talk very openly with you. Right. Sometimes they feel bad for you and they're like, yeah, you know, it happened because and Jenny from accounting, she <laughs> stuff like that. And so you so you definitely get get a lot of more insights there. Um, and I would use it as a preparation for a next round. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, in the end of our conversation, I want to discuss the topic. Um, what are the techniques? that can be used to influence the decision-making process in case if you aren't able to talk with the decision-maker. And it's a very, very common issue to many companies. They are speaking to uh, non-decision-makers, to people who just can bring your proposal, your uh, yeah. project to decision-maker. But then, like you mentioned, it just lost in the fog of war. So you don't know what's happening to this proposal. You don't know the destiny of this proposal. And you just, uh, in many cases, you are sitting like with fingers crossed, uh, waiting for approval. So what are some techniques that you can use to reach the decision-maker? Like, uh -huh. like, first of all, I would say in 70% of all cases, you just chose or were assigned the wrong entry um, because that shouldn't happen, right? Like, like the moment you are basically on a pile of paper um, bur or buried under other papers, which say nearly exactly the same what you're saying, you already have the game rigged against you. So your whole thing, that is again something like like a lot of people, as I said, when they're dead, think the game ends, but a lot of people also don't realize when the game actually starts because uh -huh. the, the game starts earlier than they think. Um, so you already in preparation for a game, you already need to think about how to not end up in specifically this situation. So um, there's not much I can give as a general advice here because it's very, very specific to the, to the account again. Um, but let's maybe distinguish two situations. One is a tender situation and one is, let's say, uh, like such a middle in or, or a bottom up or top down type of thing, right? Like where, you, where you're actually approaching it and trying to make the way. 
So tender, try to avoid it. Like tender is is horrible for us as suppliers. I I, I get it from the from the demand side. Uh, like I understand why we're building bridges and tunnels and libraries and whatnot with tender. But for us as suppliers, it's basically pressing us into a rat race. And um, I like to I like to compare tenders uh, to to casinos because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's actually that when you think about it, right? It's you 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 the house always wins, right? Sometimes one or two player also win, and we generate like a win-win situation over the amount of games. Like the house always wins, but most of the players lose. You you will lose the time for preparation. You will lose uh, nerves. You will lose sleep. You will, you know, all of that money, right? So tenders are to be avoided, in my opinion. Um, not always possible. So if you're going into a tender, I would advise you to behave like you would behave in a casino. So it's uh, dress properly, right? Like look good, um, dress to impress. Um, don't get drunk. Uh, which, which in, in our context means uh, don't overpromise, because the moment, like you know, what I mean is, in a casino you're drinking and suddenly you're throwing your chips around. Uh, in in an tender situation, it's quite similar because this pressure of a tender often leads to someone overpromising, and that is really bad because you're overpromising. They maybe take you based on that promise, so you have the short gain, but you're losing a lot of reputation and money and uh, uh, maybe you're getting even fined, you know, like because of the agreement, um, if you can't hold the overpromised stuff. So I saw a lot of people having a hard time because of that. So dress to impress, don't get drunk. And last but not least, don't think that the lady or, or, or the guy dealing you the cards is your friend. He is not. He plays for the house in the end, right? So th these are my tender rules, how I approach tenders. I, I, kind of approach it like gambling. So, <laughs> so, so so that is the one thing, the tender side. And if you have this um, not tender side where you actually generate it and, and act, uh, like a, a move and, and are kind of having your feet in for, for one reason or another, um, it's, it's again, you have to first thing, understand the game and its surroundings. So that's the whole mapping thing we were talking about, right? You have to understand the needs and the players. So that's the whole asking, listening, uh, um, verifying, and then based on your conclusions, tailoring your service or product. Um, and you have to be on your feet to map changes. And that is interesting because mapping changes is what you normally can't do from the outside. You have no chance. Like you just can't know if some priorities change. You you can't know if uh, the, the the budget suddenly change. If they don't tell you, you will never know. But often it happens that no one thinks about telling you um, that they now have maybe less budget, uh, and you're dropping out of the pile of papers just because uh, your offer is too expensive now, right? But you would totally willing to either make it cheaper or to adjust it to reflect uh, a better value for price or something like that. So how do you do that? And this is again, circling back to what I said in the beginning, you really, really need to focus on your initial contact, the ambassador, your fan club, because if you have that, you have a good source, 
normally of reliable information. And the faster that reaches you, the faster you can react and the better are your chances. Yep. Thanks a lot uh, for this answer. And for our listeners, I just want to mention once more that this uh, conversation uh, was devoted to Carol's presentation during our B2B Marketers and Founders Conference in Valencia. It will be uh, hosted a sort of November uh, in Spain, in Valencia, in Spain. So uh, I just dropped a link with the website of our conference so you can check the agenda and buy tickets and join us. So I, I, I assume you'll enjoy the agenda and what we have prepared for the conference. So you also will be able to discuss all the B2B marketing questions, issues with me, with Carol and with other speakers. Uh, so feel free to stay with us on conference after party. We'll be glad to answer all your questions. And uh, as for today, uh, it was brilliant conversation from uh, with a man who actually works with uh, so for so many years works with enterprise companies from uh, from my point of view very conservative market whom many companies want to reach out, whom uh, many companies want to cover, but in many cases, um, their, their, let's say, efforts aren't so successful as Carl with his company uh, actually uh, have. So, so uh, if you'll have any questions about this uh, topic or about the conference, drop them in the comment section or feel free to reach me out or send Carl also a private message. We'll be glad to answer all the questions. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me today, man. And I Thank hope you. we'll have another great conversation in Valencia. Take care and see you. Take care. Very much looking forward. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to learn more about system B2B marketing, check out our free email course at getlido.com SM. You'll learn the eight reasons of ineffective B2B marketing and how to fix them, how to go from marketing chaos to the system marketing and create a steady flow of quality leads. Five questions that will let you know whether you'd give your marketer a bonus or fire him the problem of RID leads and why you are missing 97% of high-quality B2B leads, why you have to dump to acquire customers. Enroll in a free course at getlido.com SM. See you in the next episode.